I'm grateful for the time that we had together. You might be wondering why we read Hosea chapter 2. I hope, uh, I hope you will see the logic of that as we proceed. <clears throat> to be honest, I'm, I'm a bit of a quandary how to, uh, how to introduce this sermon. Uh, allow me to explain. One possible way is simply to point out the fact that Satan is having a, a heyday. As our Lord uh, put it, the children of this world and their generation are wiser than the children of light. And their father, uh, father of all lies, has all the more greater wisdom. Uh, Satan has used the circumstances that... Uh, we are facing, that we have faced over the course of the last few years, particularly in order to uh, conflict Christians uh, within themselves and uh, with one another and to divide churches, force even churches to close. And we can't uh, uh, ignore such reality. We're living with it and with its consequences. Another way to introduce this sermon is, uh, what I would prefer really, is to remind ourselves that grace is more than a doctrine. That is basically the theme that I would like to deal with. Shall I say, rather, uh, grace is more than merely a doctrine. It's a truth that is meant to inform and to shape and to motivate our lives. Uh, but we Christians are, particularly maybe uh, us Reformed Christians, are sometimes inclined to think that doctrine is in order to life. Uh, it's not enough to know the truth. It's not enough to understand the truth. It's not enough to enjoy the truth, to love it. We need to live out the truth. And if we fail to do so, we are damning our souls and we're dying and we're denying the very truths which we claim to affirm. Maybe one way to introduce this is uh, Peter's uh, wonderful verse in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 8, where he is actually quoting from Proverbs and reminds us that Loves covers with a multitude covers a multitude of sins, and that's really why uh, I asked Pastor Joshua to read Hosea chapter two. A brief reminder: Hosea prophesied to the Northern Kingdom in the days of one of the most no the most successful king in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, who was highly successful, Jeroboam II, Jeroboam the son of Joash. He reigned more than any other king in the northern kingdom, 41 years. And uh, we read that, well, let me, let me just quote. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamat, which is about halfway up, into Lebanon of today, 
as far as the Sea of the Arabah, which is the Dead Sea in the deep south, reaching all the way into Judah. And this, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his prophet, the servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So it was a time of significant blessing. But it was also a time of grievous sin. Because the people repeatedly betrayed the covenant. They turned from the Lord and they attributed to pagan gods the blessings which God had showered upon them. And if they worshipped God, they worshipped God in, in terms that they had learned from the world around them, the pagan world. They had waxed fat and kicked. Political and military and economic success blinded them to the uh, far more important reality, the moral and spiritual realities. And they began to think that their success was the product of, of human ability, needless to say, their own human ability, to manipulate circumstances, uh, political and otherwise. So they turned from God to idols because idols are subject to manipulation. And they forgot that their blessings were the product of God's kindness toward them. And so God is righteously furious with them. I'm going to uh, go back to Hosea. Please follow me. Um, beginning, dispute with your mother. Dispute because she is not my wife. I am not her husband. She must remove her infidelity from her face and her adultery from behind in her breasts, otherwise I will strike, strip her naked and expose her as on the day she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, like a desert land, and put her to death with thirst. God is furious. I will take no pity on her children because they are children of infidelity, for their mother has committed prostitution. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my wine, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will obstruct her way with thorns. I will build a stone wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. And she will pursue her lovers, but she will not reach them. And she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband because it was better for me then than now. Yet she does not know that it was I myself who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain at the harvest time, and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax that I gave her to cover her nakedness. So I will uncover her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers, and no one will rescue her from my hand. I'd also put an end to all her joy, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbath, and all her festivities. And I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages for prostitution, which my lovers have given me. I will turn them into a forest, and the animals of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baal, when she used to offer sacrifices to them, and adorn herself with her nose ring and jewelry and follow her lovers 
so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Can anyone deny God's righteous anger? Are there any grounds which we could find in which to dispute the legitimacy of God's terrible response to Israel's sin? Did Israel not deserve the kind of punishment God promises the nation in this text? The question is, have we not treated God's blessings in the same way? Have we not made light of God's goodness? Have we never attributed our blessings to our abilities or to our efforts or to our qualities? Have we heard the gospel and perhaps been subject to gospel influences yet not responded? Does God not have as much legitimacy to be angry with us as he was with Israel? But we said that love covers a multitude of sins. Well, how would that relate to what we have just read? All we need to do is read on. Let me start towards the end of what I read. I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax that I gave her to cover her nakedness. I will uncover her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers, and no one will rescue her from my hand. I will also put an end to all her joy, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festivities. And I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages for prostitution, which my lovers have given me. And I will turn them into a forest, and the animals of the field will devour them. And I will punish her for the days of the Baal when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her nose ring and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I'm going to persuade her or allure her and bring her into the wilderness. Let's stop here for a moment. Let's, let's exercise a bit of uh, sanctified imagination. What would you expect to be the next phrase? We've heard God declare his terrible anger. And now, what more could God do to sinful, erring, rebellious Israel? Behold, he says, I'm going to allure her to bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. See, it's easy to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. There it is. Grace undeserved to a sinful people. I hope, I hope this latter phrase takes you in, in surprise. Uh, it, it amazes me every time I come back to it. After this pouring out of wrath, I will allure her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And you remember the rest. I will give her her vineyards, which he took from her. 
I will turn the valley of Achor or Achor into a door of hope. And I, she will respond to me as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she went up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about on that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no, no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will no longer be mentioned by her names. On that day, I will also make a covenant for them with the animals of the field and the birds of the sky and the crawling things of the ground. And I will eliminate the bow, the sword and war from the land and let them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in favor, in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. And it will come about on that day that I will respond, says the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. In the amazing unilateral love of God, the nation is to be brought to acknowledge him by his exercise of grace. It's grace that God chooses to exercise or to employ in power to bring people to himself. Let me give you an example from the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 12 to 16. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into the service, even though I was previously a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet, I was shown mercy. I will allure her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Yet, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't, I don't know you. I don't know if you are in Christ. But if you are not, know that God is willing to deal with you as he promised to deal with Israel and as he dealt with with Paul. Turn to him. Turn to him and be saved. Turn and be forgiven. Turn and live. If you are in Christ, and if you recognize your repeated failures, be encouraged because of what Christ has done for you. God has chosen to deal with you graciously. 
his love is a love which covers not only a multitude of sins, but all sins. You see, grace is not a side issue in the Christian faith, nor is it a side issue in the Christian life. It is of the very essence of both. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more now, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For, and this is Paul writing to Christians, we shall be saved. For it is while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we shall also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The gracious gift is not like the offense. For by the offense, the one, many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Grace is of the very essence of the gospel. Grace is of the very essence of our Christian life. Sisters and brothers, if you're in Christ, you're the recipients of uh, an amazingly undeserving, undeserved grace. Instead of hell, we were given heaven. Instead of punishment, we were given peace. Instead of poverty, prosperity. Instead of death, eternal life. Instead of the fires of hell, we were granted the warmth of God's kind presence and the sweetness of his everlasting company. And our standing with God is wholly the product of grace. In spite of our prideful, selfish, and arrogant disobedience to God, to which disobedience we return time and time again, And yet, God is true, though every man a liar. All glory to him. So, we know the doctrines of grace. We can dot our I's and cross our T's of Reformed theology. We re read Reformed literature, particularly if it's an old, ancient English. Uh, we enjoy Reformed preaching, but do we love and practice the grace which we have received and which we profess to believe? Do we thrill over biblical truths while we look down on others who don't quite see these truths? Sometimes say, disagreeing with us even on, on minor issues, forgetting that if love covers a, a multitude of sins, surely it should be capable of bridging any differences that may be found among those who love the Lord. I fear that some of us have forgotten or maybe never really understood that grace is truly more than a doctrine. It's a mighty truth that is meant to 
shape our lives, to find vivid expression in our lives in the way we relate in all the contexts of our lives. Grace must be there. And this is all the more true, particularly with how we treat our fellow Christians. It's not without reason that Paul, in writing to the Romans, after describing the, the grace of God in the gospel, he urged us, as we saw earlier, to present our bodies as living sacrifice and then spelled it out in terms of human relations. Serving God impl implies that we serve one another. That, again, is the force of the therefore. Grace must find expression in our everyday life. That was Paul's argument. That must be ours. Paul is telling us that we simply must not allow ourselves to be those who believe correctly and don't practice what we believe. He insists on saying that we cannot be devoted to his will unless we are likewise devoted to our brothers and sisters regardless of the difference between us, whether they're Pentecostal or Calvinistic, masked or vaccinated, uh, indifferent or antagonistic, Baptist or Presbyterian or Southern Baptist or whatever else it might be. We are obliged by the gospel to live alongside one another, to accept one another, and to labor together for the glory of God to the utmost extent that is available to us. Because God's glory is the goal of our lives, and God's grace are the grounds of our life. I'd like to make reference to a verse that I mentioned earlier in our discussion. Paul Paul faced this constant tension within the church. Should the law be kept or should it not be kept? Should Jewish tradition be kept or should it not be kept? Should we eat meat that is sacrificed to idols or should we, are we forbidden to eat meat? Uh, should we drink wine that was offered uh, in prayer to the idols or, or may we not? And Paul says... All of that is irrelevant. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's love, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. And what does he mean by that? Well, he spells it out to us. He tells us that God has received us to his glory. Remember we said this morning that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son? Well, he says at the end of his letter to the Romans, after dealing with all these issues, he says, receive one another in the same manner, in the, uh, to, on the same grounds, for the same reason that God has received us to his glory. Did God condition his receipt of us to our doing anything? Did he say, I will send my son to atone for you if you do this or that or the other. 
whence came the very fact that we believe? Is it not a work of God, the Holy Spirit? Who moved us to repent? Who granted us faith unto repentance? Is it not God? What on earth or in heaven or in hell can we attribute to ourselves? Only our sins. And yet God received us to his glory. Sinful, prideful, rebellious, unclean, and yet welcomed. Generously, lovingly, warmly. Well then, do we understand the gospel? And by understand, I mean really understand. I mean, is our understanding of the gospel purely or even only primarily intellectual? Or, or have we internalized the truths so that they become part of the woof and fabric of our thinking, of our evaluating situations, of our responding to them and saying, so I, I condemn myself. The answer to that question must be found in the practicalities, how we conduct ourselves. When no other Christians are around or sometimes when Christians are around. Years ago, I was visiting with a friend of mine. We had the privilege of being hosted by a rather wealthy, uh, highly respected noble in Scotland. And so he took us to one of these exclusive clubs for a meal. We had no idea where we were going. And as he walked in, he saw some people sitting in the corner there. And he, he turned to us and he kind of spat out and said, this place is ruined by people. We didn't dare tell him that we were people too. It's for people that Christ died. It's people who were created in the image of God. It's people to whom we must portray the gospel. It is among people that God has placed us. We are all in a mission field. And we should all be taking every opportunity we have uh, in, in order to show that Show that grace is more than a doctrine. But it has become our, our guidepost. The way we live, the choices we make, uh, the responses we give, the longings we have, the approach that we show to, to those around us. Well, if you're anything like me, then... Like me, you need to change. Uh, like me, you have a lot for which you need to repent. We too have repeatedly betrayed the covenant. And hopefully God has time and time again allured us into the wilderness and is now speaking kindly to us. And, and reminding us once again, as we sometimes have to remind our uh, erring, rebellious children. It doesn't matter what you do, I will continue to love you. Even as I punish you, I punish you because I love you. 
I want to bring you to the place, says God, that I can restore your new wine and your oil and your flax and I can cover your nakedness. And I will, I will remove from your mouth the names of the Baal and you will call me my husband. I will say you are my people and you will say you are my God. God has showered us with blessings and we must never attribute them to anyone or anything but himself. And our, our well-framed theological views tend to sometimes blind us to the realities that we profess. Surely we, we've understood what we have understood to the extent that we have understood to the limited extent to which we've understood, once again, surely by grace. It's not that we are more intelligent or more spiritually inclined. In fact, we, we should be repeatedly embarrassed when we see the, the devotion and the sincerity and the kindness and the humility, yes, and the hunger after God that we, we see in those who do not dot our I's and cross our T's. And they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. So God calls us. He says, return to me and I will return to you. My prayer is that I will learn to live out this, this amazingly sweet reality uh, there really is both amazing and sweet that love is more than a doctrine. And that is my prayer for you. Let's pray. You are a, you are a God of... Of grace, we have never deserved, never ever could deserve. I confess my sins before you. Lord, we have loved to be shown grace, but have often been backward in showing it to others. We've looked down on those who differ with us thought poorly of those who, who are different. We've not received others on the grounds that you received us so generously. We've sought to be forgiven without forgiving others. We've, we've loved ourselves and we've, we've relied on our professed achievements and abilities rather than recognize that all that we have is a gift of your grace. We've professed humility and yet acted pridefully or boasted of our humility. We don't deserve your grace, but we do desperately need it, Lord. Turn us and we shall be turned. Change us, Lord, and we shall be changed. Move us by your mighty, by your gracious Holy Spirit who 
to repent and treat others as we would have them treat us. And help us, Lord, internalize grace and, uh, and to live it out in our daily practice. We ask this for the glory of your name and by the virtues of Christ. Amen.